We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Genesis chapter 11. If you don't have your Bible, I invite you to turn there in our Pew Bible. You can find it on page 7 or page 8. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but there is a phenomenon, condition, where if you suffer maybe a, a kind of a traumatic experience, you can end up, as a result of the traumatic experience, speaking a foreign language that you've not spoken before. I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a 16-year-old boy in Atlanta. He was kicked in, a head, kicked in the head during a soccer game. He goes into a coma for about 24 hours. When he wakes up, he's able to speak uh, Spanish fluently. Not only is he able to speak Spanish fluently, but his ability to speak English is greatly diminished. Now, over time, he's regained that ability to speak English. I've read other stories of a similar kinds of experience. People who are in car accidents and things like that that woke up speaking languages that they were not fluent in, but maybe they had some exposure to or something in a school course. Imagine if you woke up tomorrow and you spoke one language and your wife or your husband or your kids spoke an entirely different language. And your neighbors, they spoke a different language. And the person that checks you out at Walmart spoke an entirely different language. Imagine how startling and how unsettling that would be. The difficulties in communication would be significant. Well, that's what we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 11. It's this fascinating story in which we see God in an act of judgment, but also in an act of mercy, come down and confuse the language of people. Now remember, we're in this sermon series in which we're going through the story of the Bible. And we've seen that Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is kind of the first section of Genesis. And then we're going to pick up kind of a new thread beginning in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of a man named Abraham. So Genesis chapter 1 through 11 deals with these big, broad themes that carry all the way through the Bible. So understanding these and having a correct grasp will help us to understand everything that's going to follow in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So just quickly to summarize, in Genesis 1, we see the creation of the heavens and the earth and a God who is sovereign and who speaks all things into existence. In Genesis chapter 2, we see order brought forth from chaos and the preparation of the earth for human habitation and the crowning achievement of God's creative work is he creates mankind. And he instructs them to be fruitful, to multiply, and to, fulfill, to fill the earth. Genesis 3, sin enters the world. All hell literally breaks loose. Creation begins to unravel at the seams. We see that Adam and Eve turn on one another. We see they actually indict God. That it's his fault that it was the woman that you gave me, Adam says. Sin then leads to all kinds of abuse and breakdown of the family. We have a brother killing a brother. Genesis 5 through 6, we see the spread of humanity. Sin continues to grow. It seems like it's spreading unimpeded and unabated on the earth, and God responds. We talked about last week one of the things that we see, one of the ways that God works in the world is that God judges sinners, but He also rescues sinners because He's gracious and merciful. And we saw that in the story of the flood. In Genesis 7 through 9, we see this man named Noah. And God judges the sin of wicked humanity, but he's gracious in preserving Noah and his family. And he makes a covenant. 
And this covenant is really the same covenant that was given to Adam and Eve. It's repeated on several occasions. Be fruitful, multiply, and spread and fill the earth. And so now we arrive to Genesis chapter 11. If you kind of think about it, we were in California. Um, you know, lots of baseball is being played. I was following the uh, playoffs and watching the different games that's going on. But we kind of have, you know, this kind of colloquial saying, you know, mess up once, it's okay. You mess up twice, things are really bad. But you mess up the third time, and it's three strikes, and you're out. That's kind of what we see here in Genesis 11. We had the garden and Adam and Eve rebel in the perfect environment. We have humanity uh, continuing to spread its evil and wickedness until God judges with the flood. And now in Genesis chapter 11, we see that the human condition hasn't changed. It's exactly the same. And so God is going to deal with this rebellion. What we see in the life of Genesis chapters 1 through 11, human beings, is that they refuse to submit to God's rule and reign. And they choose to decide for themselves what is right and what is good, and they do what they want to do. You know, Genesis, Genesis chapter 10 gives us a, a genealogy of the sons of Noah. We have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in the, verse, uh, the eighth verse of chapter 10, we read about this man named Cush, who was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon. Uruk, Akkad, Kalma, and Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Resen, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. Now to understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 11, specifically with what we refer to as the Tower of Babel, you have to understand what's taking place and kind of who is leading this building campaign. It's Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, who was cursed by Noah. So after the flood, Noah plants a vineyard. The vineyard produces a fruit. He drinks some wine. He gets drunk. He passes it out, and he's naked inside of his tent. Ham, who was the son of Noah, saw that his father was naked, and he goes and he tells his two brothers outside. The two brothers take a garment, they lay it across their shoulders, and they walk in backwards, and they cover their, na- their father's naked bodies, and they turn their faces away so they would not see their father's nakedness or his shame. Now, when Noah awoke from his wine, he finds out what the youngest son had done to him. This is what he says. Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will be to his brothers. He also says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. So he says to this one son who kind of dishonors him, he curses him. He says, you're going to be the slave of your brothers. And the city of of Babel, or Babylon, is going to be built by Ham's grandson, Nimrod. His name literally just means one who rebels. And he's going to build it as a fortress, as a place to find security and and to find safety from the, uh, the commands, but also, I think, the wrath and judgment of God. God says, you'll be, you'll serve Japheth and Shem. And this, this rebellious one says, okay, we'll see. That's what you say. You're going to curse me. I'm going to be the slaves of my brothers. I'm going to chart my own course. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, create a path for my own life. And I'm going to go and do my own thing. And so he becomes a mighty one on earth. He takes possession of all these lands, the land of Shinar, and all the peoples of the east. Now, as you read through the book of Genesis, especially these early chapters, there's this theme. Everybody's always moving to the east. 
We read they moved east. They found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. In the Bible, going east, when you read about it, especially in Genesis, it's a, it's a sign or it's a, it's a kind of a, a way of saying that people are moving away from the presence of God. When Adam and Eve sin, they're driven to the east of the garden. When they get kicked out, they go east. Cain, when he's driven out because of, his, because of the murder of his brother, he goes east. We're going to see as we move through Genesis, when Lot separates from Abraham, he goes east. So if you keep going east, what it's, what it's saying is they're moving farther and farther away from the presence of God. Every single one of us is moving east, except for my family. See, we moved from Alabama to Utah, so we're moving west. We're not, all of us are moving east. All of us are headed away from God as fast as we can possibly go. And that's what Genesis 11 is all about. It's this coordinated effort to move away from the rule and reign of God over the lives of people. So if you would, please stand as we read Genesis chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. So we have this big movement of people. They're sharing one speech, one way of communicating. And, and it may be that there are other languages that were spoken, but there's kind of one common language that everybody's able to communicate and conduct business and transactions with. We're not exactly sure. But they move east, and what they find is they find this big chunk of land. It's flat, and it looks good, and it's in the area of what you and I would refer to as modern-day Iran. They look at it and they say, that's where we're going to go. We're going to build a city there. Kind of what we have here in Salt Lake. You know, the story is as the, the LDS uh, pioneers are coming out, they look down the valley, they see the lake, and they say, this is the place. So they're saying, this is the place. It's a good place. We're going to build a city. We're going to set up shop, and we're going to stay. We're going to build a city there. We're going to be unified. Not only are we going to build a city, but they're going to build a tower. What you see in these first few verses is that there are three phrases that begin exactly the same way. They all begin with the word come. The first two are the people who've gathered in this area. And the third is God who says, come, let us go down. Now, there are kind of four key statements in this. And they all kind of arrive in verse four. One, it, where we find out that their aim is to build a city. Now, this is an important detail because typically, even in our English translations, I'm reading from the ESV, I'm sure... Other English translations uh, subtitle this the same way. It's referred to as the Tower of Babel. But that's not really the main focus. The real focus is to build a city. And in that city, we <coughs> build a tower so that our name would be known. So they have this intention. We're going to build a city. They were going to build a city, and then they aim to build a tower in that city that reaches to the heavens. <coughs> and they do it for two reasons. They aim to make a name for themselves, 
and that they might not be scattered over the whole of the earth. And those things go hand in hand. We want to build a city because the Lord told us to go and fill the earth, and we don't want to do that. So what do we do? We're going to gather together. We're going to cluster. We're going to build walls, and we're going to be protected. So their rebellion is seen in their actions to build a city. But they also want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that their name might be great. They're building a city. So what's the big deal? We live in cities. You know, when we were praying and looking where the Lord might lead us, kind of one of the, the, the criteria that I was praying and filtering through was that I wanted to be in a city that, had, that was large enough that had a professional sports team, okay? Or a college town with a really big football program. Okay? I would have, I, I, you know, be excited about either one of those. Now, those were my intentions, you know, being a big city. So there's nothing wrong with cities. So what's the point of this in Genesis chapter 11? Well, you got to remember, people are nomadic at this time, especially the story of God's covenant people. Abraham's called to leave his family, to leave his country, and to go where the Lord leads him. So there's this idea of it being on this journey, and you're not really belonging here. Nowhere you really put your stuff down and say, this is where I'm from. Hebrews chapter 13, I believe, says, we, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city which is to come. But yet, what we see in the heart of these people is, we want to build walls. We want to build homes, and this is where we're going to stay. They're wandering through the desert, and they say, that's the place where we're going to go. We're going to build a city, but it's not just any city. It's a godless city. Now, building a city was the way for them to avoid God's command to, be, to multiply and fill the, the whole earth. So in defiance of God's command, they stay in one place and they build a city. And in the middle of this city, we see what their heart's intent was, to build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that their name would be great. So the city and the tower are outward expressions of what's going on in their heart. It's the sins that we see in the garden. It's the sin of pride and the sin of rebellion. It's the sin of wanting to be God, to call the shots. And it's the sin of choosing to rebel against what God has said is good. So they want to crave, they crave to make a name for themselves, and they disobey by building a city and staying in the same place. Now, this whole idea of making a name for yourself, you know what it means, but in the Bible, there's this idea of God bringing glory to himself. And his everlasting name. We have Isaiah 63. Who calls his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who's the one that divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Isaiah 63 continues. As the cattle which go down the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Who had set the signs in Jeremiah 32 and wonders in the land of Egypt. Even to this day, both in Israel and among mankind... You have made a name for yourself as at this day. Daniel chapter 9. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. So there's this idea that names matter. We kind of talked about this earlier. It's the revelation of God's character. But the name that matters, the whole story of the Bible is about God and his name. Because his name reveals his glory. But yet this people don't care about God. They only care about themselves. Things haven't changed all that much. You don't think people are building buildings to make their name great? Drive five and a half hours to Las Vegas. There, in the middle of a desert, very similar kind of situation, or at least two buildings that I know prominently featured are the names of the men who pioneered those building projects. First one's Trump, and the other one's Wynn. 
We still do this. The cars you drive, if you drive a Ford vehicle, they name that company after the founder. It's a testament to his name and to his genius. Everybody is concerned with their name and making it great. And I think this is their attempt at heaven. This is their attempt at a utopian society where everyone gets along, where everyone is equal. We all think and talk the same. We live and act the same. Notice that there's no authority. No one is mentioned as the leader or the one who makes decisions. Everyone is free to do as they please as long as they all do the exact same thing. The idea is that they'll be able to defend, to protect themselves within this city, and there'll be a little heaven here on earth. And in the midst, we'll build a tower to the heavens so that people will know our name. This has been tried in countless different times, in various different places, and it's always failed. The problem is here, not there. See, my biggest problems in my life are not you, are not the person that cuts me off, or the person you know that uh, does whatever I find frustrating or infuriating. The problem is my heart. And I take that with me wherever I go. So even if we were to, let's say, go up on the R&R, we build a wall and we make it tall and we just say only, only our people get in, only our people get in, it won't be long. Before I'm jealous of you or you're jealous of me or we say something that's not polite or whatever because we take the problem with us. So this solution is failed from the start. Not only the fact that it's in rebellion to what God has commanded. And so this desire to have our own kingdom... This desire for our name to be great sets us in opposition to the holy and the eternal triune God whose name is great. They don't worship God, they worship themselves. They don't want his name to be great, they want their name to be great. But here's the thing. As the redeemed people of God, you and I have a privilege and a responsibility not to focus on our kingdom, not to focus on our name, but to focus on Jesus. See, we get to make the name of Jesus great. Or at least that's our aim here. We want to love God. We really do. We say we want to be a church growing in love for God. And we want to be a church that's growing in our love for Park City. Why do we want to love this community well? Because we want them to see the beauty of Jesus and love Him like we do. So everything that we do, individually and corporately, should be processed through this. Are we making the name of Jesus great? Are we glorifying the name of Jesus? To be honest, I don't think like that. I think about what's easiest, what's most comfortable, what's convenient for me. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to give up my time, the things that I enjoy. But yet we have a privilege and a responsibility to make the name of Jesus great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's what we're about. That's what we should be about as the redeemed people of God. So the goal of CPC is not that everyone would know about CPC. But the goal of CPC should be that people hear about CPC and they say, man, there must be something about that Jesus because those people love Jesus. There must be something about that Jesus I want to know more about because those people are willing to sacrifice and to serve because Jesus has done something in them. That's the kind of church that we 
want to be. We want to be a place where the name of Jesus is the great name that we celebrate. So we have this story in which they're concerned with their kingdoms, with their names, and so they're going to build a city, they're going to build a tower, and the perspective shifts. It shifts to God's perspective, and we see God commenting on the building project in Genesis chapter 11. They say, come, let us build a city. Come, let us build a tower. And now God says, come, let us go down. Okay, and this is an ironic kind of statement. You know, they're going to build a tower that's supposed to go to the heavens. And I think it's just kind of figurative speech. I don't think the intention was really we're going to build a tower all the way to heaven. But the same way, you know, that we see a huge building. Wow, we're in awe. It stretches all the way to the sky. Well, it doesn't really, but you know what we're trying to communicate. So they're building this great tower, and yet God looks at it, and this is what he's saying. He's kind of like, hmm. It's like they're doing something. Let me go down and see this great tower that they're building. It's, it's, it's inconsequential. Their greatest, grandest achievement, God, from his throne, just kind of looks at it and goes, I'll have to go down to even see exactly what it is that they're attempting to do. He's mocking their efforts in a sense, making fun of their, their, their vanity and their attempts at attempting something great. So he comes down to see this city, this great tower that the men were building, but he comes in judgment, but he also comes in grace and mercy. So one of the things that we see in the Bible is that God is glorified in his judgment. We don't like it, but God doesn't need us to like it. He doesn't need your approval or my approval. He does what he pleases. And his judgment always accomplishes his will. So he says, come, let us go down. What's interesting is this is Trinitarian language. Come, let us go down. Genesis 1, we see, let us make man in our image and likeness. And we see that God is an eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They communicate, they intend and plan and accomplish those plans together. Come, let us go down. And so God comes down. He humbles himself and he confuses their language so that they will not understand each other. Now, in light of the flood, confusing the language doesn't sound like that terrible of a judgment. And what we've seen in Genesis 1 through 11 is that God always responds to sin and rebellion. Why? Because it's this destructive force that was unleashed in the garden. Sin always divides. It divided Adam and Eve from themselves. It divided Adam and Eve from God. It divided Cain from his brother Abel. And it continually divides people. The city is their attempt to create heaven through their own efforts. To create a society where they don't need God because everyone gets along. Because everyone loves each other. Wouldn't that be a great idea if that were a reality? Like, wouldn't that be great if we could just as simply say, why can't we just all get along? And magically we did. But that's not what sin does. Sin always divides. And our attempts to build a good society or a good nation or a good culture or a good city are always doomed if that's our only hope. It wasn't an answer in Babel. It's not an answer for you and me. Their idea was we'll save ourselves. Their idea is we'll be good, we'll try hard, and yet God says, no, you rebel, and I'll judge your sin accordingly. They want to build a tower so that everyone notices them and recognizes their name, and God comes down, he humbles himself, and he judges them by confusing the language of the people. And as a result, they're scattered. He scatters them over the earth. Now, fast forward to the Gospels. And we see a similar kind of thing. God comes down. God humbles himself. 
In the person of Jesus, he's born to these impoverished teenage parents in kind of a remote corner of the world. And he comes to save his people. He comes not to bring judgment, but to endure the judgment that you and I deserve. In Babel, God confuses man's language in all kinds of division, countries, cultures, things have resulted as a result of our disobedience. But God again in the Gospels comes down and humbles himself and the confusion that was, uh, was uh, poured out in judgment on Genesis 11 is reversed in the person of Jesus. That's why we have this wonderful story of Pentecost. You know, the whole story of Pentecost is they're there, the Spirit falls on the apostles, and they start speaking, and everyone can hear in their language. So if you spoke Spanish and you spoke French, somehow, miraculously, the apostles are preaching the message of the gospel, and you could understand. And God starts to bring those divisions and make unity in his people. We see this in the book of Revelation in which John writes. We spent a lot of time in the book of Revelation. So if you've been here with us for a while, you know this passage. And he says, after I looked, there was a great multitude that no one can count. But it's not just a great multitude, but it's a multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. And they sang in a song to the Lamb that was slain. This is the song that they sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So from Genesis 11, when their languages were were confused, the people were scattered, God is going to work a plan. This plan which is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus to bring a people back in unity for himself. And he does that through the blood of Jesus Every nation, throne, tribe, people standing before the throne of God because of the blood of Jesus. He's the one that, that brings his people back together. He's the one is the, that brings heaven down. Instead of us having to build a, a tower to heaven, he brings heaven to his people. So what's the application? What's the application for you and me? This is the application. You and I... The beauty of the gospel, one of the beauties of the gospel, is that it's not about what we do. It's about what God has done in the person of Jesus. So you can live like the Tower of Babel. You can try to be good and to please God with all of your efforts. You can do the right things and go to the right places and avoid the bad people and the bad places. You can work and you can work and you can work and you can work and you can work. You'll never be enough. Your attempts at self-salvation by being good are like the Tower of Babel. God kind of looks at it because it's inconsequential. It means nothing. Or you can rest in the gospel and trust that heaven came to earth. God humbled himself in the person of Jesus and everything that was required for the salvation of all his people has been done. So when you think about the beauty of the gospel and we come to the Lord's table this morning... There's nothing you have to do. It's all been done for you. You just simply rest, stop striving, and receive the righteousness that comes by faith in the gospel. And then trust that God will accept you. If you do those things, the natural fruit of that is your life will be transformed and changed. And you will do things that are the fruit of God's Spirit at work in your life. 
So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you're trying to build a tower for your name. or. But I encourage you this morning, wherever you're at, whatever it is you're trying to do, to rest in the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus.